This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. I got a surprise for you. (laughs) You're going to love it. So right now we are in a series celebrating the voices and the influence and the accomplishments of Black women course, right here in the middle of February, which is Black History Month, as you know. And we've been thrilled to focus on these just brave and smart and intelligent and ambitious women who have been true trailblazers in their lives and in their work. I mean, every one of these conversations has left me just so energized and spinning. You know, I'm inspired so much by women. And so it it just has me thinking, gosh, women can do anything. Women are the best. Women are so profound and powerful. And this week is no exception. I have a special guest. I have had the pleasure of getting to know her low these last two years plus. And I have an enormous amount of respect for her. And for more than one reason, not only has she made her mark in this world as a black trailblazer in her industry, which you're going to hear about, and you're going to love it. She's also made a huge impact in my life. Not the least of which is that she brought a man that I care about very much into this world. And she raised him to be a stunning human being And that is my boyfriend, my partner, Tyler. And so today we have Tyler's mom, the amazing Jerry Merritt. Her story is so fascinating. When Tyler and I were recently in Vegas, Jerry and I were, I was doing essentially what I do on this show, which was 
peppering her with questions and essentially interviewing her. And that is really when I got to the bottom of what her career looks like. Look, I love him. I do. I literally love him. But Tyler had not given me the full picture of Jerry's career. He gave it to me in fits and starts. And I understood it dimly, as they say. But when I had Jerry to myself, and I really started asking her the kind of like gin hatmaker level questions that I like to ask of people that I'm interested in, I was like, wait a minute. Wait, your career is amazing. Like this is... I did not know that like, this is exactly what you did. So I'm not going to steal too much thunder, but I'm going to give you the high level here. So Jerry Merritt, where she is right now, she's a senior vice president of community development at the Bank of Nevada in Las Vegas. Her banking career spans 40 plus years and she single-handedly discerns funding from her bank for community development projects in the city. I'm going to have her explain it. This is a law. There is legislation around this. This is something that banks are required to do when they are FDIC banks. They are required to give money into the communities that they are serving for development. And this is literally what Jerry does. She is the grant giver, basically. So, Her responsibilities include coordinating all those community development initiatives and then working as the intermediary with state and local agencies and other groups involved in the community with all these economic development programs and projects. It's stunning, really. And she's so good at it. And she's absolutely revered in her city and in her industry. She's received tons of recognition for her performance and her skillful leadership and her exceptional contributions to the financial arena. She has been on so many boards and she is currently on so many boards. I could start listing them and they would never end. Like the UNLV Libraries Advisory Board, Communities and Schools Board, the Hannah Brown Community Development Corporation, Nevada Small Business Development Center, the Governor's Workforce Development Board, United Way. What I'm telling you is it doesn't end, all right? Past leadership positions for Jerry have included, she was the board president of the Rape Crisis Center and also the Urban Financial Services Coalition in Vegas. And... Chamber of Commerce, on, 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 and on it goes. And then in 2021, Jerry received the Trailblazer Award presented by the National Coalition of 100 Black Women from the Las Vegas chapter, which is an outstanding national org. And she's got so many other prizes. She has so many trophies and gold medals, guys. It's such a long list She was recognized as an interesting personality in Who's Who's in Black Las Vegas, Women to Watch Award from Vegas Inc., My Vegas Magazine's Top 100 Women of Influence. She received the Silver State Award for Female Executive of the Year. This is Tyler's mom. But we're going to take you back at the beginning of this interview to where it started in a tiny town called Utah, Alabama where she had really simple, really humble beginnings. And so you're going to see a story arc that is just inspiring. That's what it is. 
it's not just an inspiring career. Jerry's an inspiring person. This is who she is, both like at the top of the ladder in her industry, but also in her family, in her neighborhood, like in her personal community. She's just good. And she's just special. And it makes sense because she has raised such a special guy. And you're going to love her as much as you think you are. So I am so delighted and honored to bring to you this incredible conversation with the absolutely wonderful Jerry Mary. All right. Everybody get excited. I know you are because we have the one and only Jerry Merritt on the show today. Welcome. I'm just delighted to see you. I am so excited to be here. (laughs) Oh, gosh. This might be one of those cases where I used my connections to get an interview. And I think that is that's the case here. I'm invested. Why did you have to do that? You couldn't just say, hey, Jerry, let's do this. Well, to be honest with you, I did. I went straight to you and then told Tyler after. I'm like, your mom and I have a scheduled podcast. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I just asked her. He didn't have to do everything for us. Okay. I am so excited to hear about your story and your accomplishments and everything that you have built over the course of your career because I mean, it is truly, you've really pioneered some fascinating work. I mean, I, I've asked you a million questions just driving around in your car and was floored by the scope of your work, what you have created and developed, and we're going to get to it. But if you wouldn't mind, I would love to talk a little bit about your history. This is probably something that my listeners don't know the full story of, as you know, Tyler's put bits and pieces of it out there for sure. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the town you grew up in and what it was like, what your childhood was like, who was in your family, what did life in Utah look like And then I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about what kind of a little girl you were. Did you have some of this fire in your bones from the get-go? For most people, you'll say Utah and they'll say, what state? No, Utah, Alabama. Little, small, but it's really not close to what we would call the city. So I kind of grew up in the country and I can still say I'm a country girl. I was actually born to my mother when she was 14 years old. So I tease her all the time that she's only a few days older than I am. (laughs) She's your peer. (laughs) I am still blessed to still have my mother, you know, in our lives and she still travels and still enjoy all of us, you know, so I get to have her for a very long time. But it was Utah, Alabama. I often tell people when I'm speaking to a group that I happen to be, and some people might take it an offense at this, but I make a statement like I am the illegitimate grandchild of a sharecropper. Some will know exactly what that means. 
And it just basically means that my mother was not married when I was born. And my grandfather was a sharecropper. I grew up in a family with very little. And today, the city of Utah is still one of probably two, one of one out of two cities in Greene County that is very impoverished. The whole city is, is low income, actually, when you measure it against the rest of the United States. But a great place to actually be from. So your whole family was there? Whole family was there. My mom, of course, was a teenager at the time. My father, my father's family, they had a little bit more than we had. My father had gone away to the army and he had returned. And of course, he's a few years older, you know, than my mom. So his family had a little bit more than we had. So I was actually raised between my grandmothers because you got a 14-year-old and then you have a young man who just returned from the army who at this point in time was not ready to get married or even care for a child. But those two women gave me a foundation to, I would say, make who I am today. Sometimes when I tell my story, I've actually spoken to groups where women cried you know, once I share. And I would talk to them later and let them know that it wasn't as bad as it sounded. Because when you don't know any better, all is well. You know, so everyone in my family had the same thing. Everyone in the community had the same thing. So I really didn't know that there were young children at the same age I was that had any more than what we had. So wasn't a bad life at all. So then when you go into the question about what was my dreams as a little girl? Well, one of them would be probably just survival. We didn't see anything else. We did not have electricity in our home until I was 10 years old. My grandfather could not read, nor could he write, but he was a farmer. And at the same time, he was also an entrepreneur, which have a lot to do with my spirit for small businesses now because he dug wells. So when he was not farming, he would actually dig wells for other people in the community actually so that they can have water. With his income, so this was my mother's mother where I lived most of the time. And of course, I went to live with my other grandmother when I was six years old, part of the time, because we lived so far in the country that there was no schools. So my grandfather would pick me up on a Friday afternoon, carry me to my other grandmother's so I could go to school five days a week. And this was, of course, during school time. And then I would come back to my other grandmother. One of them had electricity. The other one didn't. I was 10 years old before my grandmother and my grandfather, that was a sharecropper, finally had electricity, you know, in their homes. So, Jen, I could go on all day, you know, actually sharing about how I grew up. And I'm going to use the word exciting because when you don't know any different, every day is exciting and thankful. But back to dreams. I really 
can't say as a young girl that I even thought about dreams other than just growing up where I was. But by the time I was a teenager, and of course I'm in high school, everyone wanted to be a teacher. And the reason why, because the only professional women we saw in our community were teachers. Hmm. Most of the professional men we saw was probably a pastor. And television was something we didn't even have until I was probably 13 in one of my families. And my other family, we did have, have a television, but I didn't get to watch it very much because remember, I spent the days with her when it was school time. So you didn't get to watch television. Yeah. So you didn't see, you had no vision for what professional women could be or do. And growing up in the community, and then this is a topic that we don't like to talk about these days because we buried our history when it comes to, I would say, Blacks or African-American in general. You know, you know the challenges we're having these days around our history. Absolutely. So it was not taught because most people probably want to think that it didn't happen, but it did. So as a teenager, when I would go to the movies, the white teenagers went downstairs and the black teenagers went upstairs. And we were not allowed to talk to each other. When I was in town, Utah, the little city, there were water fountains. There was one side that said color and the other one said white. And you could actually only drink out of the fountain that actually said color. So getting back to your question, it was really hard for me to dream about anything other than what I saw every single day. Certainly. You and my mom are roughly the same age. And my mom grew up in Wichita, Kansas. And I remember, I mean, I was an adult before I thought to ask my mom this, but I remember one time I was talking to my mom kind of in casual conversation about something about her high school life. And I remember when she just said, oh yeah, my my high school was not desegregated until my sophomore year. And I remember just thinking, what? I mean, we certainly know American history, but it's so very recent. It's so very recent. The civil rights movement was just a minute ago. And it is so troubling right now to watch the accurate retelling and teaching of American history. Not that it was ever ever above board, but roll back right now. If it's possible to lose ground, we are losing ground on what our students are learning and what our teachers are even able to teach. It's scary. It feels scary to me. I wonder how it feels to you to watch right now so much ado about critical race theory and to watch books being banned from school libraries that largely have little brown faces on the covers and tell those stories and those perspectives. This keeps me up at night and I'm, I'm sure it does you too. 
And we would like to think that we've come so far, but we really haven't. So here's a real life example. In the little city of Utah that we've been talking about, that I actually grew up in, that actually had fountains that you could or could not drink out of, is a beautiful high school. A high school that was just built, I think, almost three years ago, of course, from funding from the state of Alabama that only Black students go to. So you would be saying right now, well, where are the white students? In private schools? They are still in the same private school, Warrior Academy, as they were. In 1971, when we were forced to go to their school, their high school, and leave our high school behind, there was not one white student because they all chose to go to Warrior Academy, which was a private school. So here we are in 2024, the city of Utah still looks like that. What's comforting for me I am told by my little nieces and nephews that are cousins that actually live back there that that may be a fact during the day when school is in. But come Friday night or Saturday night or sometime even Sunday, we have the Black Warrior River that runs very near parts of it, contemporaries of it, runs very near. So we call it down at the dam. That on the weekend, our young people are there enjoying each other, having a great time. As a matter of fact, they're even dating, but they can't tell their parents. And we feel like we've come so far. So I guess on the other hand, we have come so far. Because look at me. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I am a product of the discussion we're having. But we have come, not as far as we should have, but some differences have been made. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
I'm imagining you as a little girl, as a preteen, as a teenager in Utah thinking, well, I guess I could be a teacher or marry a <laughs> pastor. And here you are, an executive and highly esteemed, not just in your field, but in your entire city. Tyler always calls you the Oprah of Vegas. That's quite a leap forward. And so I'd love to go back because the majority of your family still lives in Utah. And so they are there and you're there a lot. You go home a lot, but you didn't have a large precedence for leaving town. You're kind of an outlier in your family. And so I wonder if you could take us back to what it looked like to leave Utah and what was surrounding that decision and what were those early years like as you sort of built a different kind of life than the one that you knew? Well, when we get back to the dreams, like I said a few minutes ago, never thought about actually leaving the little city, you know, of Utah. It was surviving, you know, get through high school. And not only did my mother, but both of my grandmother, always encouraged us as girls to make sure that we did better than what they were doing. They couldn't give us a picture of what that looked like, but those were their goals. And they surrounded us with women that were doing, I shouldn't say better, but doing differently than they were. And several of those women for me was actually teachers. And of course, my mom and my grandmother, they identified that as little girls or girls growing up, that if they could expose us to women, you know, that were professionals, that we had some hope of becoming one one day. So I would say, I think I was in the 10th grade, Sunday afternoon, and just hanging out, you know, in the yard. That's all. I mean, there was no place really to go. And along comes this young man riding his bicycle, just riding along. You know, I didn't pay him any attention because here I am a lot younger and here's this older guy riding by on, on his bicycle. And I would have never said anything to him because that would have been a no-no, right? Well, he didn't say anything to me either. But he did check me out. How about that? It still happened his cousin lived next door. So... He asked his cousin about, you know, who I was. And I think he kind of knew who I was, but not really. So the next day, my cousin would say, hey, you know, my cousin asked about you. And I was like, why? But at the same time, I was kind of excited because an older noticed, right? So from him riding by, and he will tell you the story on his bicycle on a Sunday afternoon, here I was what, 13, 14-year-old talking to an older guy. Well, that older guy happened to graduate from high school probably a year later. He was actually a senior in high school. And he was drafted. As a matter of fact, he and his twin brother was drafted. And during the draft, you could only take one. So the husband chose to not go into the army, well, Milton chose not to go into the army. He chose to go into the Air Force. So his, his twin brother stayed behind and he actually went into the Air Force. So just because he went away 
there was a lot of letter writing going on. Okay. Remember, no cell phone. Oh, of course. So, so we did have a telephone, but, you know, we didn't have long distance on the telephone, you know, whatever. So there was a lot of letter writing going. He would come home and actually visit whenever he was on leave. And this romance continued until my senior year. By the time it was my senior year, he had been in the Air Force for three years. And I remember him sending me a letter and saying, will you marry me? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, to make a long story short, he was overseas. He actually sent me my promise ring in a box. Oh, I didn't know this. Yes. Hmm. The mailman delivered my promise ring because he <laughs> wanted to make sure that I was promised to him. <laughs> Yeah, that's a grand gesture. Yes. So from the promise ring to the engagement ring, you know, to finally being married. And I wasn't even 18 years old yet. My birthday wasn't until May and we were married on New Year's of 1973. You were 17. So that opened the door for me to have dreams. Because. I knew then for the first time I was going to have the opportunity to actually leave Utah. Now, was my mother happy or excited? I'm no. Sure. No, not at all. Number one, because my mother had actually been working at the University of Alabama. And I tell people all the time she was a domestic engineer. <laughs> but there was a lot of students there that appreciated the fact that she helped them keep their dorm rooms in the condition they were. She wanted me to go to University of Alabama because in her dreams, that was going to give me the opportunity, if nothing else, to be a teacher because many of the young girls my age had also planned to go to other colleges throughout Alabama. But mine was the greatest because I could go to University of Alabama. Everyone else was looking for historical Black colleges to attend. So when I asked her if I could marry Milton. She was not happy, but she did not say no, because till today, I assumed that she knew that it would give me an opportunity to do something that she actually couldn't provide. That was when my dream started. It did. And sure enough, the Air Force took you around. I mean, you're just still a teenager. and Where's the first place that you and Milton moved? Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had never been on an airplane. <laughs> I had never dreamed of getting on one. My grandmother always said, if God had meant for us to fly, he would have given us Milton came home from his leave on January 1st, 1973. My mother put together a nice little beautiful wedding, you know, actually for us. He leaves a week later and goes back to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he was stationed. And my goal was not to follow right away. But of course, he was married and he wanted his wife with him. So I received a call 
one afternoon, you know, we were in between high school and time to go to college. And he said, hey, I think I want you to come to Albuquerque. And I said, I have to ask my mom, you know. And he said, do you really? Because you're married now. I was like, that's right. right. I'm your wife. (laughs) You know, I really don't have to ask my mom. Yeah. So I left Utah, Alabama. Well, not really. Because the closest airport is Birmingham, as you would know. My mother and father drove me to Birmingham to catch the plane. And I think I had to cry the whole time. And I flew into Albuquerque, New Mexico, where we actually lived for six years. But I had promised my mother one thing, that if she let me get married, I will continue my education. And I did do that. Once I got to Albuquerque, I did enroll at the University of New Mexico. And three years later, we had this little thing. Yes, you did. <laughs> and during that time, as I was going to school and, you know, carrying a baby, I worked everything from cleaning the apartments there to, I remember, sewing for Levi Strauss. So today I, I can't see a pair of Levi jeans without that I know how the sausage is made. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, gosh. And of course, piecemealing my education, actually majoring in just taking business classes because I knew that I wanted to do something. So after six years, we moved to Fairbanks, Alaska. And I would remember till today, a girlfriend said, hey, you need to get a job. And I go, really? I don't think they have any jobs like we have experience in here. But we went down to the bank. We applied for a job as a teller. I was really surprised that the human resources person said, when can you start? Mm-hmm. And we were like, tomorrow? And that was the start of my banking career as a teller. Had no experience at all. But the bank actually paid for your education as an employee. And I enrolled in at the University of Alaska, still pursuing my business and finance degree. Working at the bank, taking care of a little boy. So four years later, as we left Fairbanks, Alaska, my education wasn't quite finished, but it was almost there. I was a branch manager of a bank, and we left there and came to Las Vegas, Nevada. Of course, it was really hard to convince any bank here that I had accomplished so much in four years. So for all intended purposes, I had to start all over. So I started all over as a teller. Did you? Hmm, yes. Interesting. Started all over as a teller, but immediately applied for the bank's management program, which was pretty easy for me because I had, I had actually been yeah, in banking before. So after getting a position as a manager, I would say almost the other 40 some years is history. This year, I will celebrate 46 years in the financial services industry. Can you believe that? And it just was happenstance. Well, I guess I'll go apply at this bank. I don't know what else to do. It's You didn't even have a dream for banking necessarily. Not at all. No. Air Force Flight in Fairbank, Alaska. In the nearest city, we lived at the base, Allison Air Force Base. And it was, say, 
20 miles away. But we knew as Air Force wives because our, our husbands made so little, you know, then in the, what, late 70s. But we did it. I'm thinking about those early years. I'm so impressed, both the tenacity and the humility that it required to start back over as a teller when you had already been a branch manager. That took some gumption to take that and to what would have felt probably to you like a demotion from what you knew, from what you were skilled at, from what your experience already was and kind of restart the engine on the lower rung. I'm curious what sorts of obstacles you faced in those earlier years, those building years where you are working your way up and you are gaining credibility and authority and experience. And I wonder what it was like for you, number one, as a woman in a field that is dominated at the top of the leadership chain by men, and then also particularly as a Black woman, there's still a wage gap between white women and Black women. And so what was that like for you? In those building years, what did you face? What did you have to overcome or override or resist to continue that upward mobility? Well, you know, now that I look back, sometimes it becomes painful. But at the time, I think I was so driven that I didn't know anything better than to expect that I deserved what I saw everyone else have. Because I think if I had took a moment and thought about it, I probably would not be here today. You know, but I think back to my mother and my grandmothers who always talked about, you can do better, you can do better. So that's what I always heard. I always knew that I could do better. When I was probably in high school, I read this book and I really need to go back and find it again and find out who the author is, but it was called, I Always Wanted to Be Somebody. Oh, good title. Yes. I'll have to look it up, you know, as I really should. So with that, I always wanted to be somebody attitude. Whenever I ran into an obstacle, I kind of pushed it aside. And you are right. Being in the financial service industry as a woman was one obstacle. Being black was huge, okay? And this still is a dominated career that is mostly led by men. White men, right? White men, still absolutely today. But I think because I was so driven and I kept my eye on the goal, and I was brought up in Utah, Alabama, where I had probably already seen the worst of the worst when it actually came to being Black. You know, that it was really hard for anyone to tell me that I couldn't or I shouldn't. Was I passed over many times because I was a woman and especially because I was Black? Yes. Remember I told you a few minutes ago that I started as a teller, but I applied for the management training program. 
first time I tried for the management training program, I was the only black female that applied. I was not accepted at all. I was actually told that I was six days, think about it, six days short of the time that you could actually apply for the management program with the same financial institution that I was working for, even though I had been a manager. Their only excuse was that I was six days short. Well, the management training program was not going to open again at that bank for another year. I didn't have time to wait. So I just applied at another financial institution and kept it moving. And I think back today, if I had waited around for that management training program, I would have not had some of the opportunities that I really got to have as I went to other financial institutions. Now, was it easy when I was climbing the ladder? No. I like to tell about when I finally reached the position of branch manager of a little small bank not too far from where we live now, which you probably drove by when you were here as you got to the freeway. Mostly white men would also come into the bank and they want to speak to the branch manager, right? So this was back in the day when we still had assistants or secretaries that actually sat in the lobby. So they would ask, I would like to speak to the branch manager, Jerry Merritt, because they had seen my name somewhere, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and the assistant would say, Mrs. Merritt is here. And more than once, they would say, I would like to speak to him. Sure. And often, once they found out that I was the branch manager, they chose not to complete the business that they came into the bank for. But did it stop me from doing the job that I had accepted of wanting to do better? No, not at all. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'd like to talk about your incredible ascension, really, into what it is you do now. When you explain to me in just stark terms, this is what I do. This is how it works functionally. I must have asked you a hundred questions because I just thought you have so much influence and, and honestly power for good in the city. It's bananas. And so I wonder if you can talk about how you went from being branch manager at one of the smaller banks right there by the freeway to what it is that you are now. You hold the purse strings to do such incredible good in the city and you do. So can you talk a little bit about what happened between branch manager to get to where you are today at such a high level? So the financial institution where I was a branch manager was actually bought out by a larger financial institution. What happened was the positions changed or the roles changed. And of course, because I had been 
a branch manager, I was asked to go into a different position, actually managing more of the high net worth clients. So once I started to do this, there were other banks that was very interested in what I was doing for this bank because they actually was interested in my portfolio. And many times would I would have other banks actually come to me and say, I tried to get this client to move their relationship. And they said, I'm not moving because of my banker. So therefore, I could almost write my check, my own check <laughs> to financial institutions because of the portfolio that I managed. So I was able to leave that particular bank and go to another bank where I was actually a private banking officer, which basically means that in order to be part of my portfolio, you have to have millions of dollars, okay? So as a private banking officer, I love the job. And because I had been a branch manager, my passion was actually around small business and actually taking care of the, the consumer that actually had needs. So after spending a few years in private banking, I had another financial institution, which happened to be this one, actually give me a call and say, would you come work for us? And I was like, no, you don't understand. I work for one of the second largest financial institutions in the city, and I'm a private banker. But as I thought about what I had just said, I thought to myself, are you really working at your fullest potential? Are you really helping the ones that need help? Well, after about a year or so, they came back to me again, and they made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And that offer was, you will have the opportunity to run a region, because we have regional banking, and we would like for you to come and build a region. And I said today in the office that I had an opportunity to build and grow up, and for all intents and purposes, running my own bank, you know, with everything that you have in a bank, my own loan officers, my business development officers, you know, everything you needed. I was actually approving loans. I had other people underwriting them. I thought I had finally arrived. I enjoyed the at least three years that I had a brand new bank and was able to do all these things and make a difference in the community. So as you remember, in 2008 to 2010, our economy especially here in Las Vegas, because we were the largest growing city in the United States. And of course, we had homes, we, we had everything. When the economy hit really hard, this bank chose to go from regional banking to branch banking. So when they went from regional banking to branch banking, my position for all intent and purposes no longer existed. They did not need regional presidents to actually run branches. I was like, Okay, I'll just set it out until I find another position at another bank. Well, in the meantime, I got a call from Human Resources that said, we have a position open in the CRA. And of course, CRA stands for Community Reinvestment Act. The CRA officer position is open. And we know what you have done in the community, even though just running your bank, you know, I work for small businesses, I work with nonprofits. Don't you understand? I'm a banker. I don't want a new community. Okay, I'll go do it while I'm looking for something else. And then, of course, when I got to the point that my salary wouldn't change, I asked them, what day do I start? 
So I actually went into community development from actually being a regional president. I was only here six months before I realized that this was something I really enjoyed because I was the only person in the bank that was giving away money. And the nonprofits, the community in general, embraced me probably more than I embraced them because for the first time in my banking career, I knew that I was working in my purpose. The small businesses, I could tell them how to get loans. I enjoy what I do as much as I do. And at the same time, I'm giving back in areas that I probably would give back in, even if I didn't get paid to do it. So that's how I got here. I wonder if you can talk for just one more minute. Because when you explained this to me, that was news to me. I did not realize that there was legislation and policy around banks giving money into the community. Can you just, in layman's terms, explain that a little bit more about what it is when you say, I'm the only one here at this bank giving money away, what the structure around that is that you learn to plug into? So in 1977, the CRA Act was enacted. That stands for Community Reinvestment Act, because you actually had financial institutions that was actually doing what is known as redlining. You have probably heard that word before, okay? And there were actually physical redlines in communities where they would lend to people that lived on this side of the community, but they wouldn't lend to people that lived on this side. And the CRA Act was created in 1977, which basically said that if you are a financial institution actually taking deposits in a community and you are FDIC insured, you must give back in that community a portion of your revenue that you actually have earned on an annual basis. So all federal FDIC-insured financial institutions, based on their size, have an obligation to actually give back to their community. Within that act, if you read it, it actually talks about your low to moderate income individuals, your nonprofit organizations, and affordable housing. So under those three pillars, all financial institutions have to give back. For some of the larger financial institutions, they choose to give back in very large sums in order to meet their goal. We choose to engage in the community, get to know where the needs are, and then actually make these donations to these organizations and have our employees do so. And I can say this large banks like Wells Fargo Bank or large banks like Bank of America, you know, have huge dollars, millions of dollars that they give back to the community. But sometimes they choose to give them in larger amounts than organizations like mine do. So that is probably the reason why, until we start talking about it, that it really didn't register with you that your financial institution actually gives back in your community. And so... That is literally what you do. You are the head 
of this. This is what you decide. I mean, it is no wonder every single nonprofit in the city limits of Vegas want you on their board. They are not dumb. And you are on so many, 12 or some crazy number, and you've been on more. And so, so literally millions of dollars pass through your hands every single year, and you are granting it to these incredible organizations in your city. It's such a brilliant job. It, it's such an amazing position to be in. I'd love to hear you talk for a minute about, it seems obvious, but some of the rewarding aspects of this job. And if there is even a favorite, do you have a favorite grant you have ever gotten to give or an endowment that you were able to facilitate that really meant something special to you or that was transformative for the city or for that, at least for that organization or community, because essentially you give money to good organizations every day. That's your job. And so I'd love to hear maybe some of the highlights or a favorite or any of that. Well, you know, I don't have a favorite because all of the nonprofits that we're able to give money to happen to be my favorite. Okay. <laughs> I get that. I would say probably one of the highlights of me doing this over the last 10 years only happened about three weeks ago. As you know, we had the Super Bowl. Yes, you did. I had the opportunity to sit on the host committee for community, okay, for the NFL. So anytime the NFL comes in and do a Super Bowl, they actually engage themselves in the community. So I was part of the host committee, and my bank was a sponsor for some of the small business things that actually happened. Through the host committee for the NFL here in Las Vegas, they also had a philanthropy arm to make sure that they gave back grants. They actually were called legacy grants and community grants. Through that program and the sponsorship of Bank of Nevada with the NFL, the NFL said, we have this money. We have as a matter of fact, $3 million wow. that we want to put in the community. So who know better where the dollars should go than those of us that was already involved? So through that, to make the NFL money go farther, they came to us that was already giving grants to organizations and said, because of your involvement with the NFL, you have the opportunity to choose some of your nonprofits to actually receive a match for dollars that you've already given them. I was able to choose 14, I wish it could have been more, of our 14 organizations that we had actually made, made donations to in 2023 that the NFL actually matched those grants for them. I would say that is a highlight for me to call those 14 nonprofits and invite them to a breakfast, which they had no idea that they had been chosen. Goosebumps. 
They have no idea that they have been chosen. All they know is that one of their funders had actually invited them to attend. And they actually got the letter from the host committee saying that you have been invited on behalf of the host committee and Bank of Nevada to attend this purpose. And they received matching grants for the grants that our organization had given. That makes me want to cry. Yes, that is the highlight. That's so exciting. Did they all just freak out? Yeah, there were 29 nonprofits because there were other financial institutions that was participating also. But 14 of those were organizations that I had recommended. And there was what I think $1.3 million given out that day and $2 that we had already given. That's fantastic. And I run a foundation too. We, we're a grant giving organization. So we're not reinventing the wheel. We are funding people who invented the wheel. Same as you. And those grants and some of those amounts are game changing amounts for a lot of these organizations. It's tipping point grants. So they are able to start whole new programs or hire as they need. I mean, it's a big deal. It's not like a drop in the bucket for some of these enormous national organizations. This is incredible money for these organizations. And so I can imagine their response to find out that the football guys were matching their grant. That must have been thrilling. And there was huge media around yeah. it. Think about it. Mm-hmm. It's the NFL. Totally. That's good PR. Yes, it was huge media around it, you know, and plus for them to get to see themselves and the, you know, and the spotlight of gaining something for the community in which they serve. And here's the other important thing. All of the grants that we give within my organization are unrestricted. As you know from running endowment that you yourself, quite often these grants are restricted and these organizations will have to do what they said they were going to do and they checked off the box. So as I'm able to give grants to nonprofit organizations that are non-restricted, that is huge. That means that they can keep a program that they, the grant they applied for, they didn't get. That means that they can hire that one employee, you know, that they don't have the funding for. And these grants that was matched by the NFL, was also unrestricted. Yes. Totally. Oh, no. That's just the very best. I am so happy you told that story. I just have one last question because you're a busy lady and you have things to do. You have money to give away. I told you earlier, this series is literally called For the Love of Black Trailblazers, and you got an actual Trailblazer Award. Was it just this last year, the Trailblazer Award? And this was presented to you by the National Coalition of 100 Black Women, the Vegas chapter. It's just a huge deal. And I like to bookend it with this because I think about where you and I started this conversation, where you're a little girl, your mom's 14, you're born in Utah, the only professional woman you ever saw was a teacher. And now here you are winning a trailblazer award. It's so powerful. It's so incredible. What a story. And I would just, I know that you don't make a big practice 
of talking a lot about yourself and what it is you've accomplished and how much influence you have garnered and what a difference you have made in this world. But I just wonder if you could talk for just a minute here at the end about what that means to have that level of recognition, having really started from such humble spaces to be here in this position of influence. What does it mean to you? And then secondly, what are you hoping that women paying attention to your career and your leadership and particularly black women are learning? What are your hopes for them as they pursue legacy and impact for their lives and their families and their cities too? I would like to say I'm blessed. I can't think of one thing that I have done in my career to actually get me here today that I have any control over or I've actually set out to do. I always worked at trying to make sure that I was giving back, doing the best I could at everything that I did and to making sure that I made a difference no matter what it was. From actually being a teller to being a regional president of a bank. But to receive this award from among my peers, from other Black women that could see in me a difference that I was making actually in their community was huge. And to the second part of your question, when I look at other young Black women, I want to make sure that they see me as making a difference. Making a difference sometime in their careers and definitely always in their community. And as I've chosen to actually mentor many of them, they're usually not interested in my title, okay? They're actually interested in who I am as a person, what they could be, I want to become to be able to achieve their dreams. So I would say to any Black woman, young or sometimes even older women, would say, can we just talk about how you made that happen? Can you talk about the difference, you know, that we can actually make? I would actually say to them, always pursue your dreams because there is nothing that you as a woman, and especially as a Black woman, cannot accomplish if you work at it. And what I love for everybody to know that's listening is that this is just who you are, because this is also how you are inside your family and inside your community, inside your friend group, inside everybody, your neighbors, And everybody who knows you, you are like the matriarch of of everyone. You're like the matriarch of everyone. And of course, you know, I don't even have to look any further than Tyler to see where he gets it from exactly, just exactly. He is so much like you in, in so many of these like beautiful and good ways of just the generosity of spirit and this sense of 
everyone's family and family sticks and family stays and no man left behind. And he's like you in all of the best ways. And so some of the ways in which you work in the world, you have all these fancy awards for, and you're a fancy person, but you are also like that as a daughter and as a sister and as a cousin and as a friend and as a mother. And so I feel so lucky to know you and to learn from you and to watch you and emulate what I see. And so it's incredible and it's extraordinary. Now, now truly, this is the last question. And I really mean it this time. Now, this is a question that I ask all of my guests in every single series. And so you can answer this however you want, Jerry, you can answer it like in a sweet kind of earnest way, or you can answer it in an absolutely absurd way. And they both count and we've get both. I borrowed this question from a priest that I love. Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. So this is her question. What is saving your life right now? That is so easy. Oh, okay, great. Relationships. Every single day, relationships, whether it be with my family, whether it be with friends, whether it be with co-workers or sometimes even strangers. My mother always say to me, don't you get tired? No, because an obstacle in a relationship that I can help someone with, if I can bring them joy, If I can just help them through whatever it is, it helps me so much. I am never tired of pouring into others. There's always something positive to come out of it regardless. I mean, even here at work, you know, quite often I will have the team say, there's someone waiting for you outside and they don't have an appointment. And I'll say, and what does that have to do with what their needs are? It's that sneaky little secret of happiness, which is generosity. Just when you think it's going to be about what I get, what I receive, it's this little secret that it's what we give that turns out to be the most meaningful, the most joy-filled. That's really where life's at. And I am with you on that. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show today. I really can't. And I know that time is your hottest commodity. And so the fact that you would just hop on your laptop and have this conversation for my show means the world to me. Thank you for being on today. I feel just so lucky, so blessed to use your word that you are in my life and that the the Merritt family now I've hooked in. I've sunk my hooks. So <laughs> you might see what you get by just passing by. That's great. <laughs> you get the whole ball of wax. I did. <laughs> I did. I got way more, way more than I bargained for. Yes. And everything about that's exactly right. Yes. Lucky me. Thanks for exactly. being on today. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. So good, right? She is so smart and good and 
tenacious and impressive, just all the things I love in a woman. I feel so lucky that I get to know her and be a part of her family and learn from her. And like I told her, hopefully emulate her, to be honest. If you go over to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I'm going to have this whole episode for you. I'll have the show notes. I'll have all the links. This would be one you can easily share with your friends or with your community. And then just let us know what you think of it. We're always listening. We're always paying attention to your responses and your comments and your requests. That means the world to us. We love this listening community. You are the reason we are here obviously. You are the reason we are way north of 50 million downloads on this show. So thank you. Thank you for being so loyal and so good. It is our honor and our joy to serve you. All right, you guys, more to come in this awesome series on Black Trailblazers, and we'll see you next week. The For the Love podcast with Jen Hatmaker is a presentation of Odyssey and produced by Four Eyes Media with Laura Neitzling, producer, Abby Stevens, production director, Gregory DeMario, production assistant, and Lauren Winfield, researcher. Odyssey's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Leah Reese-Dennis. Special thanks to the team at Odyssey, Maura Curran, Melissa Wester, Matt Casey, Kate Hutchinson, Eric Donnelly, Aaron Constantino, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schupf. Listen and follow For the Love, an Odyssey podcast produced by Four Eyes Media on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a production of Four Eyes Media.